previously on the Sports Refuge Podcast. If I was unemployed without a wife and just being a single dude, yes, I would sit here all day and watch wrestling all day. I'd be able to watch everything, but that's not my life. From Delaware, almost live, this is the Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the weekly podcast featuring interviews with guests discussing their connection to sports. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. Welcome to episode 39 of the Sports Refuge, the weekly interview show where guests discuss their connection with sports. I'm your host, Earl Holland. On our most recent edition of the show, I sat down with Andre Watson, a former classmate of mine at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore, and discuss how he became a fan of wrestling, as well as the significance of Kofi Kingston becoming the first black WWE heavyweight champion. In the second part of this interview, Watson shares what it's like attending WrestleMania on multiple occasions, what his most cherished piece of wrestling memorabilia is, and then we take a detour to discuss his career in journalism and how he left the field in the midst of layoffs and corporate downsizing. And now, here's part two of my interview with Andre Watson. You have attended a lot of wrestling events. How did you start getting the itch to attend events like that? And what planning goes into those things? Yeah, so basically this goes back to the beginning of my story. So I don't have any recollection of these events, but my great-grandfather used to take me to, to shows back in South Carolina. And once I moved with my dad to Maryland, I never went to any shows. He wasn't a wrestling fan. My mom wasn't a wrestling fan. So it was like... My wrestling consumption literally consisted of watching wrestling on Saturdays all day, pretty much from, I guess, you know, WCW Pro was at like 9 o'clock. I watched from like 9 to 2 because I think they had WCW Pro, then there was Superstars at 10, then WWF had a show at 11, and then he had Worldwide at 1. So that was like all day. That's all I would do all day on Saturdays. Then Nitro came, or then Raw came, and then I would watch that. Primetime Wrestling before that, I would watch that on Monday nights, and then all of that. But I didn't go to shows. And I can count on one hand, I can tell you really quick, because it'll take two seconds, the amount of shows I went to when I lived in Maryland. Um, I went to WCW show, Nitro, in June of 98. That was when um, Chris Jericho was Mr. Loophole, and he stormed the, the Library of Congress to protest that Dean Malenko stole the Cruiserweight title from him, uh, which was hilarious. That was probably my favorite version of Chris Jericho, Mr. Loophole Jericho from 1998. Also that night, Sting joined the NWO Wolfpack, and so that was at the NCI Center. I went to that. So that was like the first show that I remember going to. Um, after that was a few years later, didn't go to my next show till 2001 was actually like two weeks before WrestleMania 17, the night that Paul Heyman debuted on commentary on raw from the NCI center, um, in Washington as well. Also a famous skit from that night is when Vincent Mann made Trish strip down to her bra and panties and block like a dog. And then after that, I think I went to a house show in DC in 2003. And until I moved to Jersey, man, I didn't go to any wrestling shows for like eight years. Um, and it's the same went with pay-per-views. My parents weren't people that bought pay-per-views growing up. My first pay-per-view that I ever saw was WrestleMania six. My grandparents bought it for me. And after that, they brought Slamboree 93. So I saw like two pay-per-views for like 10 years. I think I saw like WrestleMania, and these are live. I'm talking live. So they ordered that for me live. And then I think the next pay-per-view I saw after 93 wasn't until 99 when we lived in Washington state and the guy lived across the street was also a wrestling fan, and I went over there and watched WrestleMania uh, 2000 with them. 
And that was like the extent of my pay-per-view watching for years until, you know, I got older enough and got my own job where I would pay for them. I would buy Mania every year. And I always had this itch to go to WrestleMania. Like, I remember I told my grandmother that watching WrestleMania 6, Hogan and Warrior, when I was like seven years old, I'm going to go to that one day. Not knowing that my parents were going to take me, but somehow I would get there. So my plan was, you know, I started going to shows, and I guess we'll talk about that later, but I started going to some indie shows in the Philadelphia, New Jersey area when I moved up here once I got out of journalism because I could do that because I didn't work freaking Saturdays and Sundays anymore. So I started going to, to shows around here, and this is a good, you know, a good spot for wrestling. You get a lot of shows around here. Um, but the WrestleMania bug was still there, so I always told Wood, I said, look, Wood, you know, and you know this, Earl, like the WrestleMania the anniversary shows for WrestleMania 1, 10, and 20 were in the garden, right? So my plan was WrestleMania 30 is going to be in the garden. That's how I'm going to go to my WrestleMania and make my dream come true. So I, was, I started to do that. I got married in 2012, so um, I wanted to go to WrestleMania 28, which was, you know, Rock and Cena, but I got married like a couple weeks after that, so there was no way I could do that money-wise. So when I'm sitting there watching WrestleMania 28, my wife's down there, we're just watching it, and the promo comes off, comes across the screen for WrestleMania 29 in New York, New Jersey for 2013. And I'm like, well... Oh, my God. Well, I guess I'm going to go a year early because they're not going to do the Garden now because at this point they were doing big arenas, so it kind of made sense for them not to go back to the Garden, even though I thought that they would just raise ticket prices and they would still be able to make their money being in the Garden. But I understand why they kind of got away from uh, you know smaller venues for Mania. So I said, we're going. And I literally started planning uh, maybe the next day, you know, trying to see where I was going to stay regarding the hotel, you know, trying to research, you know, previous WrestleManias is try to gauge how much tickets were going to cost. Was I going to drive? Yeah, I was going to drive because I only lived 90 minutes from MetLife Stadium. So, yeah, I was going to drive right up the turnpike. Give them the turnpike 90 minutes away. Um, so I knew I was going to drive, but I had to find a place to stay, you know, had to figure out what I was going to do for tickets and that sort of thing. And what other shows was I going to go to? Because by this point, WrestleMania became this whole festival. It was, it's not just WWE that's running that weekend. It's, you know, it's your Ring of Honors. It's your independent companies. It's your Evolves. It's your you know, Dragon Gate when they were running. It's all types of promotion. WrestleCon actually had their first um, WrestleCon that year. So that was a big deal. Um, so we actually stayed in the Holiday Inn in Secaucus um, through WrestleCon. They got a group rate and we went to a bunch of shows pretty much posted up in the WrestleCon venue, watched all their shows, did the WWE Hall of Fame, did Mania, and then came back home. But yeah, so I mean, I started my planning every year. It literally starts earlier than, than most. But for the first couple I went to, it was like, I started the year before. And when I went to Mania in 2013, I remember going in the stadium, and I was just, just taken aback by the the sea of people, the sea of wrestling fans that were, because I'd never been around that many wrestling fans, you know, as as I said, I only gone to a handful of shows, and the most wrestling fans I'd ever been around was like maybe 16,000, and getting in that stadium, seeing like 80,000 wrestling fans, I just kind of like, kind of got emotional, man, like, yeah, man, I'm not, I'm not freaking WrestleMania, I can't believe this is happening, you know, I've wanted to do this for so long, I'm here. And by the end of that night, I was kind of like, man, this was awesome, but this show sucked. Outside of Taker and, and Punk, this show was not good. Like, I don't feel fulfilled. Yeah, yeah, I got my dream. I don't feel fulfilled. So 
But immediately after that, we started playing for New Orleans. And went to New Orleans, and um, that is uh, not New Orleans. We had a great time in New Orleans. It's still probably the closest thing I've had to a perfect trip. Uh, Daniel Bryan and WrestleMania took over that year, took over Bourbon Street. People chanting, yes, 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 all weekend. I lost my voice, like, the first night that we were down there. It was terrible. Um, and then I went to 31 only because one of my buddies who I do a podcast with was like, I'm going. I'm going this year. So I flew out to California and went for that, went for that, and that was going to be done. But it was in California where I got the bug and said, you know what? I'm going to do this every year. And I've gone every year pretty much since 20, 2013. And, uh, you know, every year has been different as far as the planning. I've done some years I've stayed a lot longer in the city. Some years I've shortened the trip depending on money. But, you know, it's just a lot of fun. And it's just, man, I think when I think about it, I really have, you know, because I was saying earlier, because my parents weren't wrestling fans and they didn't take me to anything, we're not taking you to that fake shit. Um, because they didn't take me to anything. I kind of have a Michael Jackson complex when it comes to wrestling. So I'm kind of like living out my childhood and things I would have done with my childhood, if I could have afforded to do it, now that I have the money to do it, and it's fun. I've met a lot of cool people, some of my best friends I've met through going on these trips. So I just love it, man. Like I told you earlier, I think you know, with the sprout up of AEW and so many independents and things going on, it's just it's just a great time to be a wrestling fan. I just love traveling to these different, um, you know, different places to see these big events. You know, it's kind of it's kind of what I live for at this point. How much would you say on average you spend on a WrestleMania trip? See, that depends. Again, city to city, everything's different. Um, and let me let me also say that I think I'm able to do this every year because I do budget a year in advance, and I, I try to um, save money where I can. Um, now, I don't know if you've ever seen them, but WWE, they have their WrestleMania travel package that they put out every year. And these things are like, they get you between like three and five nights now with SmackDown. And they get you your hotel, they get you tickets to all the events, and they cost probably the, the smallest package or the cheapest package costs about, depending on the city, again, because most some cities cities are more expensive than others, let's say 1500 ballpark. I don't spend all that. I probably spend maybe a grand, maybe. Um, that's, inclu- that's inclusive of everything. I'm talking hotel, tickets, food, transportation, everything. And what WWE gets you, they only give you hotel and tickets to the event and sometimes transportation if they have a subway system. But I'm talking all-inclusive with everything included. I try to get out, you know, with a grand every year to do every single thing I want. So I buy everything separately. I buy all my tickets separately. You know, I'm on time when the, when the sales happen. I do the pre-sales. I get, you know, the, the seats that are within my budget. I don't pay over budget. You know, I usually try to go for, up until this year, I would go for 100-level seats, which are, you know, your stadium seats that, that are, are there all the time for, like, football games and all that, so the 100-level. And those run you, depending on market, between, like, 175 and 250 depending on market. Um, you know, as times have changed, stuff has gotten more expensive, so you got to find other ways to kind of cut costs. But, um yeah, so I mean, that's I mean, you know, I try to keep it to like a thousand dollars for like the four day trip or five days, depending on what city city I am. I am, and that, that's costing, that's including food, everything. So I'm cutting costs whenever I can. That's why I book my hotel a year in advance because if you book your hotel in a year in advance, you lock in your rates, and your rates not going to increase once they see that you know a special event's going on. Like I remember in New Orleans, 
Um, uh, we got a WrestleCon rate that year too. It was great. But if you wanted to stay in, in the French Quarter in New Orleans, you wanted to book after like August of 20. So WrestleMania was in 2014. If you tried to book in New Orleans by like December of 2013, you were looking at like $600 a night in the French Quarter. Yeah, I wasn't doing that. Would not pay like 179 a night. Uh, to stay in the French Quarter or the Central Business District that year. So, yeah, man, it's just a lot of different ways I can try to see the cheapest way I can do it every year. That's the only way I've been able to keep going every year. I mean, if I was doing a package every year, that's literally like two years. I would really only be able to do it like every other year if I wanted to buy the package every year. Mm -hmm. And that's just being realistic because it just costs so much. What would you say is the one location that you hope that WrestleMania would come to? just to make things, I guess, a little even more accessible. Would it be Philadelphia? Would it be Baltimore? Would it be even FedEx, even though it's such a mess there because traffic <laughs> is a disaster? As a Redskins fan, I already know that FedEx is a disaster. But, you know, if it was Raven Stadium, which fits in Baltimore and the accessibility, or if it were Philadelphia just because where it is, what are those two seats? And I'm not just narrowing it down to those two because I was just thinking uh, on a selfish impact as well. But where would you want yeah. the dream location to be? Well, obviously, the dream location and Linwood. I don't know if he mentioned this to you. He's probably he will back to, anybody will back it up. That's been there. The dream location, the goat, the greatest of all time location. It, it won't be beat. The only thing I can see possibly beating it is Vegas. Um, is New Orleans. Um, New Orleans is the the perfect place for WrestleMania week. It's a small town. It's very compact. You know where everybody's going to be every night. They're going to be on Bourbon Street, <laughs> so you get the vibe of WrestleMania is taking over the city. From that standpoint, uh, selfishly, I would want it to be in Philly because I wouldn't have to pay for a hotel. <laughs> so I wouldn't have to pay for a flight. I would save so much money. You know, it, I would just have to pay for my tickets to the events. I would save so much money by being in Philly. So selfishly, yes, Philly would be a nice location. Um, Vegas is also the next, you know, hopeful, inevitable location with the new Raiders stadium being built. I foresee uh, a... Um, a New Orleans-type atmosphere on Fremont Street in Old Vegas um, because it's uh, the same type of deal, like a like little strip, and you have open container policy with alcohol, so it's going to be crazy and rowdy and all that like Bourbon Street is. So, you know, I think New Orleans and, and Las Vegas are your perfect places for WrestleMania. I think New York, while for me it's saving money on the, um, the, uh, the transportation because I don't have to fly, New York's just too big of a city for WrestleMania. Both times, I don't know if it had to do with the fact that I stayed where I stayed, but both times I felt like it's so big that it swallowed up WrestleMania. You know, there were several times where we took the train where we were on the train and we didn't see any wrestling fans in sight. We saw your normal commuters, you know, day-to-day -day going to work, going about their normal lives. And we were like, man, it doesn't feel like WrestleMania's here. And that's one of the charms of WrestleMania coming to every city, coming to a different city every year because they take over. San Jose was kind of the same deal because San Jose is a small town. So when it rolled into San Jose in 2015, you could tell WrestleMania was in town. Really couldn't tell WrestleMania is in town. If you were in Brooklyn, yeah, you could a little bit. But if you were in Manhattan, you just thought it was just another day in Manhattan. And that really kind of, that bummed me out. And I knew that was going to happen because it happened in 29, WrestleMania 29 in 2013. I, I, you know, it's just, and then the fact that you have, the New York area being so big, you had wrestling fans staying in Brooklyn. You had wrestling fans staying in Manhattan. You had wrestling fans staying over across the bridge in Jersey, in Secaucus, in, in, in Hoboken, and other places of that, that nature. So it was spread out. 
you know, New Orleans, everybody's in the same place. Everybody's for the most part staying in, you know, in New Orleans. So you know where everybody's at. You know, there are some people that stay out by the airport, you know, if they're not a party or anything like that, but or something like that. But for the most part, the, the core fan base is in the French Quarter in New Orleans, having a good time, taking over the city. Um, you know, so those are some of the the comparisons and contrasts I've seen going to these different cities, you know, every year. It really depends on the, how big the city is in regards to whether WrestleMania is really going to feel like it's taking over the city. Yeah, and I was saying, like I said, uh, and I've told Lynn with this before, like Baltimore would be perfect. You have the World Farms Arena. There you can have your NXT show. You have Raven Stadium. Mm-hmm. You can have WrestleMania there. The weather should be fairly good for that time of year. Yes, a little chilly, but we're other than that, I mean, every, the accessibility. D.C. is so close. A whole bunch of other places are so close. Philadelphia is still close. And I feel like, man, that would be a place, especially seeing that the Mid-Atlantic and all this stuff that – WWF had its uh, foundings near DC and near Baltimore and, uh, you know, had their success mm-hmm. with capital wrestling. You would think yep. that'd be something that they would really aim for. Yeah. I mean, you know, we'll see. I, I don't know what, how far, how far is rural farms arena from Camden yards? Um, that's like a short walk. It's like 10 minutes worth. Okay. 10 minutes right. at worst. Yeah, so, okay. So yeah, that's the thing. That's, that's the one thing about Philly that should be appealing because you literally have, the complex. You have Wells Fargo Center. You have Citizen Bank Park. Well, you're not going to use that, but you have Wells Fargo Center and the link right there. The convention center, which they can use, is a short train ride from either of those locations. So Philadelphia is a perfect infrastructure for WrestleMania. Um, the problem I've been reading, number one, Philadelphia was supposed to be in the running for 2015, but... Apparently, they went into the meeting with Vince or the, whoever, WWF and WWE, and was kind of treating them like what WWE could do by bringing WrestleMania to their city as, as opposed to what Philadelphia could do for Vince. And he doesn't want to hear that. He wants to know how you can partner with him and what you can do for what, what you can do to bring his extravaganza to your city. And, you know, San Jose wild him out of the park. You know, San Jose, Santa Clara, wild him out of the park with their presentation, so they got mania. Whereas Philadelphia was kind of, you know, lackluster and kind of had their nose turned up to wrestling, it seemed like, from reading the reports that I read. But Philadelphia has a perfect infrastructure. The only thing outside of what I just mentioned that's kind of not in their favor is you're so close to New York, like, and New York's such a big media market. Like, why do I want to go to Philadelphia and I go right to New York and get all the, you know, get all the coverage, you know, be on the Today Show, be on this and that, you know, that's the only thing I can see them stopping from, from running in Philadelphia is just the fact that they're so close to New York. And if you want all that pub and, 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 and attention, just go to New York. <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely a dream location for me from a financial standpoint, for sure. Yeah. And, and that's why I wonder, I mean, honestly, traffic would be nuts because look, I, we went to a concert at Wells Fargo the same night they had monster jam at, at, at the link and it was nuts just trying to get mm-hmm. in to Philadelphia and even taking all the back roads to get to the parking spaces near Wells Fargo. It was just ridiculous. And you know, that's going to be, of course, traffic will be one big issue coming in. And I mean, I still think it would be a nice experience. I mean, sure, we'd probably end up getting into Philadelphia at 10 a.m. in the morning just to experience everything and probably not leave till well late because it would be just a cluster trying to get out of that area because mm-hmm. everybody's going to be leaving unless, I mean, 
I don't even know how close the closest scepter is. I mean, that might be the other thing. Just take the scepter from Wilmington just to get to that whole complex and do that. But it'd be something nice. Like if, for example, let's say the Redskins build a stadium in D.C. right on RFK and you decide, oh, let's put WrestleMania in D.C. there at that venue. That is absolutely perfect because you can still get to the Armory Stop. You can still get to Capital One Arena. You can still get everywhere else around D.C. without the cluster and, and even driving. I mean, that's perfect. Perfect, but I don't know if they'll do that. I mean, it's a selling point because you know you go to some of these stadiums where you know it's, it can be a hassle. Like so, when it went to Dallas, you know, everything except WrestleMania was in Dallas, so you had to stress like, man, how am I going to get out to Jerry World? You know, luckily WrestleCon ran a bus. There was a, a couple shuttle buses that were running, you know, that helped you out. And WWF, WWE, if, if you had their travel package, they gave you you know free transportation on a shuttle bus to get out there. But, you know, that can be a headache when, you know, some of these uh, WrestleManias are what we call spread apart in cities that are spread apart, I should say, trying to figure out how you're going to get from point A to point B without renting a car. Um, San Jose, they had a, a train system at the time, which wasn't the best. We were pretty much the guinea pig for Super Bowl 50. Yeah, Super Bowl 50. Yeah, because that was in 2016. So, yeah, so they kind of used us as the guinea pig to, to make sure their transportation was running correctly, to make sure the arena was, like, you know, operating correctly and all that other stuff before they hosted the Super Bowl. So, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, I think having it in a location that's very – has good public transportation, number one, is good. And if not, then all the arenas are within walking distance. All the venue locations are within walking distance, so you can lessen the burden on the fan, you know, from each show – from show A to show B to show C. Yeah, and I'm just thinking that with these big cities and, and all this stuff, it'd be like, for example, putting WrestleMania in St. Petersburg and not in Tampa. Because that means everything else is in Tampa. You have to drive across that narrow bridge that everybody talks about. Mm -hmm. that the accessibility to St. Petersburg is a problem. That's why race fans don't ever go to games, because they still have to drive away on a narrow bridge, and that's the only way to mm -hmm. get into to St. Petersburg from Tampa. And Yeah, yeah I didn't know that. Yeah, because yeah, that's, that's why like if you put everything in Tampa, you put everything at the at the Buccaneer Stadium, and if you put everything at the Lightning's Arena for, for NXT and all the other stuff in the Hall of Fame, that's great. You put it in, just like you mentioned, the Jerry World analogy in Dallas, that would be a disaster. Yeah, so I mean, uh, yeah, just from everything I'm reading, they, 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 they like locations where, you know, you know, obviously the proximity to the venues is, is key. So I think Philly has that, and, you know, mentioned, you mentioned, you know, the train system in D.C., they have that. If they were to build a stadium for the Redskins, on the river down there. Um, yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, theoretically, well, uh, I don't want to go to a baseball stadium for WrestleMania, but, uh, you know, if they really wanted to, they could try to pitch a national park, but whatever. Um, you know, yeah, national we'll park see. is um, a disaster, man. But, but you also got to look at this, and this is the other thing I've learned going at these things, and it, it really narrows the city down. Yes, there's all these, everybody wants WrestleMania to be in their town, right? Their hometown. But you also got to look at, People travel, like me, people are traveling in for WrestleMania. A lot of these people, they use their one vacation of the year to go to WrestleMania. So it also needs to be a city for tourists. Like, I remember year, people have been crying in the Midwest for years. Um, about, you know, when is it going to be in Indianapolis? You know, Minnesota, the Vikings have a new stadium. Blah, blah, blah. You know, when is it going to come here? And I'm like, if you're an overseas fan or you're a traveling wrestling fan, do you want to go 
yeah, Minnesota has some nice wrestling history, but it's going to be cold. Like, do you really want to spend a week in Minnesota, you know, in early April? I don't. I would only go to Mania for like two days and come home. I wouldn't be spending much time there. I would just go probably just go to Mania and come home. Um, so the tourist destination is also a big part of it as well. So there's definitely a lot of factors that go into them deciding where they're going to run WrestleMania every year. And one of the other venues, other places that you've been, you've been to a lot of events. I know we'll talk about Dallas and going to the G1, but you had the opportunity to go on the Chris Jericho Rock and Wrestling Cruise. What was that like? Oh, man. Oh, man. So so here's the deal. So before <laughs> before I was a wrestling fan, well, no, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Before I started traveling for wrestling, I was a cruiser. So I was lucky enough to, my parents took me on a couple cruises when I was a kid, and my wife and I went on our honeymoon to Bermuda uh, out of Baltimore um, on, on a cruise. Um, so that was my thing, man. And I remember we signed up to go on a cruise in 2013, like while we were on our honeymoon. We're like, yep, we're going to go on a cruise. And then, like I said, two weeks later, I saw WrestleMania was going to be in uh, New Jersey. I said, nope, not doing it. And we canceled it. But so that's been, that's one of my other hobbies or, or loves, I should say, is cruising. So when I saw that they were running, actually, I kind of scoffed at it. I was like, man, that'd be so cool to go on that cruise. Man, it'd be so cool. Like, combine two of my favorite things in life, wrestling and cruising, that'd be so cool. But I kind of scoffed at it a little bit because I was going to New Orleans. I'm like, man, I don't, man I'm not going to have, it's going to sell out. I'm not going to have the money to do it. And then one night I was just like, man, you know what? All things considered, I was drunk when I did this. I'm going on a cruise, and I, I, I booked it <laughs> on a drunken whim. Um, and it was so cool, man. And I was just talking about New Orleans and, and WrestleMania and the compactness of, of, of Bourbon Street in that area. It was just like that on the, on the cruise because you're on a boat. Where the hell are you going to go? So to have all, like, 2,000 wrestling fans, 3,000, whatever it was, I think we had, like, 25, 3,000, something like that, all on one boat having a good time, watching wrestling, um, having the wrestlers be accessible. I mean, they were cool as, they were cool as hell. They were chatting you up. You know, me, man, like, you know, we're former journalists. Like, you know, we've interviewed people. And I did a little bit of pro stuff, and, you know, I, I've interviewed some people. So I'm kind of like, I'm still in that mode where I'm like, mm, you're just a guy. I'm not going to get, you know, I'll pay to meet you if he's one of my, my favorites. But you're on a cruise. You're on your, your downtime. I'm not going to approach you asking for a picture or anything like that. So it was to the point where people were, like, approaching me, trying to talk to me because I was I kind of seemed standoffish because I didn't want to talk to him. I wasn't, like, being, like, a normal wrestling fan, like, hey, man, how you doing, blah, blah, blah. I remember Kenny King, like, <laughs> like he came up and talked to me, and I was like, yeah, yeah what's up, man? Uh, where's the hip-hop at? He's like, you're not gonna find over here, brother. I'm like, I know, man. I know. I know what I know what I signed up for. I'm just asking. But um, yeah, man. So it's just it's just an opportunity to to it. Number one, it's the first one. So I'm a big first guy. Like if I got a chance again, because these last like ten years, I've heard so many stories, especially being up here in near Philly, and so many stories of people how they went to ECW back in the day. And I would give a non-vital organ if I could just go back to 1996 and be able to to go sit in the ECW arena and experience that as like a 13-year-old kid. Um, but I hear so many stories about that, or I was at this show, or I was at that show. I was at the first, you know, I was at WrestleMania when Stone Cold won the belt from Shawn Michaels or something like that. So I become this big first person. So I was like, man, this is the first cruise. I got to be on it. And that's another reason why I, I chose to go. So it was cool, man. And I'm going on the next one in, in January. It's, it's, 
it's just a good time. Everybody's relaxing, vibing. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the uh, the music per se, but Chris Jericho's band there. He's a very talented guy. He's a very talented performer, and um, you know, I'll probably just have a good time and watch wrestling like I did the last time. It's a good time. There's so many questions to take out of this. First of all, I know you're talking about the music. While it's a lot more rock than what you're probably signed up for, what you were uh, expecting. Um, how did you just sort of try to, you know, get ingrained with some of the music and some of the stuff? I mean, while it's, it's not your cup of tea, I know you're more hip hop and things like that. How did you just sort of like when it came to the music? What how did you try to get acclimated to that? I mean, my st- I, I took my stepson, and he likes that type of music, so I just sat there and watched it with him. And I, uh, you know, I, like I said. Pete Jericho is a performer, and I was very entertained by their performances. I actually came home and listened to some Fozzie, which is his band, for a couple of days after uh, I got back home from the cruise. You know, it's good stuff. I mean, very talented. I, I missed them. I was going to go, actually, when they were back in Camden again, which I missed them. I think they were back in Camden sometime. It might have been in March or something like that, and I missed them. But, um, yeah, I mean, I just kind of sat there and appreciated it for what it was and kind of took in the atmosphere. Obviously, people... Love that type of music. I wouldn't hate on it. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it was all good, man. You know, and there were a lot of people that were on the cruise that were either just on the cruise for wrestling or just on the cruise for music. There were a lot of people that weren't wrestling fans that were just on the cruise for Fozzie and some of the bands. So, you know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't the per- perfect match for everybody. I should say. Yeah, and the funny thing is, I assume, especially for more themed cruises, they are a little more pricier than they would be for your traditional standard cruise. Correct. I Correct. I was just looking at one time and just thinking I was looking. Hey, I wanted to check out this Soul Train cruise and to find out it was twice as much as it would have yeah. been for a standard cruise just by yourself. Yep. I mean, we're going mm-hmm. on a cruise ourselves in September, and when we through some of these deals, we ended up only paying maybe about fifteen hundred dollars for both of us. And yep. yeah, you know, yep. and that's a, you pay maybe two or three times that much for just one person on a specialty cruise. Yeah, I'm paying about I think. All including alcohol, it'll be fifteen hundred per person. So my buddy's going with me, so it'll be fifteen hundred per person. Um, and it's only four days, right? You're probably going like a seven day cruise, right? So uh, nine day, yeah, nine day cruise, yeah, nine day, yeah. So yeah, so I mean, um, but I mean, to have wrestling on a cruise on a boat, it was worth it. Like I said, I had such a good time. I'm gonna do it again here, and uh, and take it from there. And then you know, little did I know, and low key, that was really. Um, you know, one of the seeds of AEW as well. You know, people talk about All In being the launching point for AEW with, you know, Cody and the Bucks doing that show in Chicago last September. On the Jericho Cruise, they kind of took that a step further. They were they spent a lot of time talking about there needs to be competition. And this is Jim Ross. I was, you know, pushing this. And I was like, what's going on here? And come to find out, three months later, voila. AEW is announced, and Jim Ross is a part of AEW. So it was very interesting to see, and you know, and a lot of those guys, obviously, Cody and the Bucks, who were on the cruise, they're in AEW now. Hangman Page, who was on the cruise, is in AEW now. Brandy Rose, who was on the cruise, is in AEW now. So, I mean, just very interesting how, you know, it doesn't get talked about a lot, but, you know, Jericho, obviously, but Jericho and that cruise kind of had its part in, you know, building this, you know, being a step towards the formation of uh, AEW, I would say. Do you think that maybe with this upcoming cruise, they might integrate that a lot more, especially make an event out of it as well? Yeah, so, well, yeah, so, I mean, all the stars, so the first cruise, it was ROH and Impact Stars. So that's that's who was on the cruise the first time. So this this time is just only AEW. 
So, um, to be honest, if I'm them, and Cody has said this, like he's like, we're not going to run WrestleMania weekend. That's WWE's thing. We're not going to touch that. I would do the cruise as my big one thing a year, and then also keep doing what they've been doing with the um, the big weekends. Like they'll do the holiday weekend, like they do all in. They're doing all out in September. You know, they did the Vegas one for double nothing, nothing the weekends or whatever, and just have the traveling wrestling fans for that. But your one big thing is this cruise. I mean, yes, it's more expensive. Well, technically, no, it's not. Again, I was talking about the travel packages earlier. That cruise is on par with a four-night travel package for WWE, a silver package, not even the top package, like a silver package getting you every seat to every show that I get for much cheaper because I book separately. So if you do a WWE travel package every year, you're spending the same amount of money to go on that cruise, and your food's included, and, and that's including the alcohol if you get the alcohol. You don't have to get the alcohol. Um, plus, you're seeing wrestling. You're seeing you know live bands, if that's your thing. You're seeing comedy. So, yeah, I think it's pretty much um, you know, a watch as far as you know price point you know, concerned with WrestleMania. Now, obviously, international fans, it's going to be you know, much more um, because they got to get from overseas, but they do that anyway. So I think they're going to end up spending the same amount of money that they always spend. So if I were them, I would do the cruise every year as my big, big, big event of the year. And I think that... Especially, I like the idea that they're not going to run a pay-per-view every month. That's fatigue. That'll just wear you down. I like the every other month format. I feel like the slow build helps build things up. I mean, even then, the old days, in the mid-90s, until what, 97 when they started doing one every month? I feel like... WCW started it. Yeah, I feel like just having that build, you have the big blow-off at three months, or you have the big blow-off at six months or whatever, and and go through those pay-per-views. I feel like those things really help. And I feel like you don't even always have to have the big attraction wrestler there, but you still have to have their presence there. A promo here and there, a pre-tape promo, something like that, especially incorporating the social media and things like that. How Kevin Owens did the bowling from the bowling alley thing. How that worked out. I feel like six, yeah, stuff like great. that could really work as long as it's utilized, you know, like we saw the 24-7. That is going to... You know, you just give people an audience to read. So I like the Mixed Match Challenge. You could watch it on Facebook at any time. I feel like that was a smart idea. I I'm surprised they don't do it again on Facebook, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what the viewership was like. I didn't watch any of it. I know it's on the network now. I just don't have time. It's too much. <laughs> it's, it's too much wrestling, man. Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting you bring that up. You know, the, the slow build, just getting off the, rest, uh, the traveling for a second. Look at SummerSlam, man. Like, I... This is cold wood, man. We're going up there on Thursday. I'm like, ah, you know, I'm looking forward to NXT as I always, always am, and ROH should be fun. But I'm like, something I'm not looking forward to it. Like none of it, because like, look, look at the hot shot of the Trish and Charlotte match. Like that came out of nowhere. They've done nothing where they've like teased or anything. Like they've done nothing. Like I could see like. They should have t- started teasing that maybe at um, Raw Reunion. That would have gave it a couple weeks at least. Now we're, we're hot-shotting that with like a week and a half build? No. And that's the problem with all these pay-per-views today, especially like it was even worse when they were doing like the – well, no, nah, I'm not going to say that. But like it seems like with the pay-per-views being every month, you have your pay-per-view on a Sunday. Your Raw the next night is your aftermath, right? Then you have like two weeks of actual build for the next review, and then you have your pay-per-view that following Sunday. So you literally only get like two weeks of actual build to your next supposed big show. And I have a problem with it 
taking some of the bill out of WrestleMania over the past few years. Like, I feel like they need to get rid of the March shows and have the, whole month, the month of March off so where, you know, if you have your Elimination Chamber in February, after that, you're spending like six weeks to build a mania. WrestleMania deserves that. Not WrestleMania doesn't deserve your 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 still your stale three two three week build that you do to every other freaking show throughout the year, and that's a big problem with the product as well. The lack of taking time to building, you know, storyline anticipation, um, you know, like we had back in the day, like you said, like growing up when we only had four pay per views, they took forever to build the stuff because they had the time to. When you only had Mania, SummerSlam, Survivor Series, and uh, the Royal Rumble, and AEW, you know, for now at least. Is uh is taking that that tact of uh, you know having a couple months to build to the next big show. The last big show was in May. The next one will be next month. They've had all this time to build to this show, so that makes you more you know intrigued and anticipated to see it when you get all this time to tell good stories instead of just rushing everything and hot shot. What are your thoughts on the NWA? I know that had a, a lot of mm. uh, a build and interest, especially coming back once Billy Corgan bought the rights and the trademark. And as I mentioned before, those are one of the things I watched. I may not watch a lot of them, but I did watch a lot of the 10 pounds of gold, especially when they were building up Nick Aldis versus Cody and things oh, like yeah, that. I feel like they do a good job of, you know, and having you get invested in the superstar and things like that. And I feel like Nick Aldis is a, a perfect fit as champion right now. My question is, what is the next step? I know they have Willie Mack as a champ. I forgot who the women's champ is now that, that Jazz abdicated the, the belt. And I know they're talking about bringing back uh, tag team belts. And I know they got the, I believe, the Crockett Cup uh, along the line. Yeah, they had the Crockett, yeah, they had the Crockett Cup a couple, a couple months ago in North Carolina. Um I wanted to see that show, but I just you know, I didn't have time. I forgot what was going on that night. But um, yeah, um, you know, I I too, um, to be honest with you, I didn't watch any of the being the elite stuff before All In. So I was kind of like in the dark when it came to a lot of stuff that happened on that show. Um, the one thing I did watch though was the ten pounds of gold leading telling the story of Nick Aldis and and Cody, and I was so invested in Cody winning that belt. That night, that was probably the most invested I had been um, in somebody winning a championship um, since, I would say, Johnny Wrestling against uh, Andrade at TakeOver Philadelphia was also one. But before that was Daniel Bryan at WrestleMania 30. So we're talking pretty much, you know, four years since I'd really been invested in somebody winning something. I thought they did an excellent job. However... And they have a following, but dude, like, if you look at their, what's the YouTube subscriber number? What is it? 100K? Maybe? Maybe? Like, there aren't anything but a group that puts out YouTube videos. Like, they don't, they're not a, they don't run shows. Like, you know, they had a, 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 um, I'm sorry, a, a partnership with ROH that just recently, uh, they, they, they part ways with last week, um, or actually earlier this week. They were supposed to be on the ROH show. Aldis was supposed to defend the title against um, somebody in Villain Enterprises in Toronto. And now that matches off because the companies aren't working together. So it's kind of hard. And this was the thing with AEW when they launched and all that. It was like, okay, this is great, but you need TV to sustain. That's what you need. Like even Impact has TV. I mean, they're owned by the company. The TV stations on the company they're owned by, which isn't the best, but at least they have something. So... Right now, the NWA is just a thing. I mean, they, yes, they've created a, a buzz of some sort, but if you go back and really look at the YouTube views for those videos, it's not that much. <laughs> it's not that much. So, I mean, 
yes, the name has quote unquote meant more than it has meant since what 1991 or 92 or 94. Whenever the last time WCW used those letters, or when TNA used the letters back in 2002, when we talked about R Truth being the former NWA champ when he was his, under his real name Ron Killings back in TNA back in the day. In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really mean much, man. And I'm not looking to Nick all the scotch for whatever reason. He doesn't do it for me for whatever reason. I went to a <laughs> quick story. So I went to All In last year, and I went to the first StarCast. And I was like, yeah, man, I want to take a picture, you know, since Conrad Thompson, who's Ric Flair's son-in-law, you know, Conrad does all these podcasts, like 18,000 podcasts. He He's a belt collector, so he has, like, all these, like, memorabilia belts and robes and all that. So I took a picture with Ric Flair, one of his actual robes, and the actual NWA championship, uh, the big gold from, like, 1980s, whatever, that he won, like, the 1980s. And it was, like, I almost had a tear in my eye because, you know, that's what I first started watching, like I told you before, Crockett and all that. So I was a Crockett guy or a WCW guy as opposed to a, a WWF guy, although I did love Hulk Hogan and Ultimate Warrior, too. Um... But one of the photo ops was to take a picture with Nick Aldis in the 10 pounds of gold. And I was like, man, can I just take a picture with the belt? I don't want to take a picture with Nick Aldis. Like, it's just, he doesn't do it for me. I don't know why, because the dude has a good look. He can talk. He can work. I just I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. I just, I'm not a Nick Aldis guy, but I will tell you I was. He did, or it might have been just Cody, the story of Cody winning the NWA championship that his father held. You know, his first crack at it at such a big show, historic show, which was all in. I'm, that really just got me, uh, got me hooked into that story, and I was all in on that storyline heading into that show. What is the biggest bit of wrestling memorabilia that you have? Oof, yeah, I don't have much. I'm not Connor, Ed. Um, man, I don't. I mean, I you know, so when I go to Mania every year, I I, I get three things. I get a program, I get a T-shirt, and I get a a, a cup. Um, so I have programs from every WrestleMania except for Dallas. So, because I didn't want anything to do with that Dallas star. Like I almost didn't go to Dallas cause I didn't want any part of anything having to do with the Dallas Cowboys. Um, so I had to like swallow my pride to even go to Dallas for WrestleMania. I'm still kind of disgusted. I gave Jerry Jones money. Um, but man, I have like, I mean, I have this freaking undertaker plaque that I'm looking at right now that, should be my biggest piece of memorabilia from WrestleMania 33 when we thought he was retiring because he freaking left his hat and gloves and coat in the ring, but it doesn't mean a damn thing now because he's wrestled a few times since then. Um, I would say my Intercontinental title. So I I brought for my wedding, everybody in my family knows and my wife's family has come to find out that I'm a big wrestling fan. So for my wedding, I was like, yo, I was wearing white, so I won a classic Intercontinental title. You know, the white one that, you know, Warrior had, the white strap that Sean had, that, that belt. Um, so I have that, and it's signed by a bunch of former Intercontinental Champions, which I got done during WrestleMania 29 weekend in 2013. Bret Hart signed it, Ricky Steamboat signed it, Tito Santana signed it, Greg the Hammer Valentine signed it, RVD signed it, uh, Big Show who held the belt signed it, um, and there's some people on the back that, I did have signed. I didn't hold the belt, but for everybody that did hold it, they they signed the front of it. So that, that's probably it. Because um, this was the first really wrestling belt that I owned, too, so that was cool. And it was just like, my wife was like, you're just going to get that belt for the wedding? What are you going to do with it after that? I was like, I'll figure it out. <laughs> so 
when I went to WrestleMania, I'm like, this is what I can do with the belt. I can uh, I can go to WrestleCon and get people to sign it. So I would say that's probably it. I mean, I mean, I pretty much met hell. Shoot, the Kofi plaque, man, that's up there too now that I got this thing in my possession. Like we talked about earlier, as big a deal as that was, I mean, that's the fact that it's signed. The Undertaker plaque's not signed, unfortunately. Kind of thinking I'm gonna get rid of it just for the fact that again he's wrestled since that match and number two it's not signed. I, I don't know if it really has that much meaning to be honest. But this Kofi thing that's a that's a big deal. But yeah, if I had to really narrow it down to one, I would say you know my uh, my signed uh, replica um, IC old school IC WWF in a kind of title belt. Who's the most elusive signature that you want on that belt, if anybody that's still living? Let's let's classify that's that still, still living. living. Um, you're gonna laugh, and I'm so angry that he wasn't. At, I don't have any. I'm trying to. I'm looking at. I'm trying to find room from him for him on the front. There's one person that is elusive that I need on this. No, I'm, I can get him right here. He is the greatest Intercontinental Champion of all time, the Honky Tonk Man. He is my elusive signature on this belt. I pretty much have everybody else that. I mean, I have Brett and Steamboat. That's those are really the only two that really matter. <laughs> really, I mean, not not Razor or Sean or or. Oh well, yeah, Razor and Sean. Yeah, you know. And I met Sean too, and I didn't even think to to have him sign the belt because I really only have one spot left, and it's for the honky tonk man. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, man, if I had more room, I might have some room up here. And now, yeah, I've, I've already, I met Sean and Razor, and I didn't even think because I then I ended up buying a WWE encyclopedia, so. Like they, I know Razor signed that, and then Sean signed a. I don't know if you ever saw it, but back in 2000, they put out a book um, to go along with um, WrestleMania 2000, and I have that book. Um, it's just showing it's a it's a story pretty much of WrestleMania from you know 1985 through 19 oh, through 2000. I think the last one they covered was 2000, or it might have been 1999. There's a picture in there, um, the famous picture of. Sean and Brett facing off um, right before the WrestleMania 12 match with, I guess, Earl Hebner right there in between them holding the WWF championship. Um, or was it Piper? Whoever it was, I forget. Um, no, it wasn't Piper, it was Earl. And Sean signed on his side of the picture, and it's just sitting there like that. Um, Brett's, like I said, signed my IC title, but... Um, yeah, so that's the one thing I have signed by Sean. And ironically, when I met Sean, it was like 2014. He didn't even look like Sean Michaels. He had grown this hunting beard because he was doing the hunting show at the time. So he looks like this like 60-year-old grizzled hunter instead of like the Sean Michaels that we remember. <laughs> so that's just a funny story. But yeah, I mean, if I could fit Razor and Sean, yeah. But I mean, to be honest, Honky Tonk Man is really the, the one <laughs> for the, because he's the greatest intercontinental champion of all time in his mind. So he's really the one that would want on there. Yeah, when you started saying, yeah, don't laugh, I'm like, what, do you want Santino or something? I mean, I knew you were like, <laughs> I wonder if you're going to get Honky Tonk Man because Honky Tonk Man, hey, whatever people think about him, that man is the record holder or near the record holder. I don't know oh. if Santino passed him by now no, or if anybody else has passed him. him. No, okay. no didn't pass him. And it, was, it pissed me off because, like, he was doing – I was like, there's no way he's not going to be there because he had been to Jersey a few times – um, for the promoters that were bringing in most of the guys that I got to sign the belt who were bringing those guys in. But he went to freaking, like, 
Pittsburgh Comic Con that weekend instead. I was like, what are you doing? Like, you're not going to make the money at Steel City Comic Con that you're going to make WrestleMania weekend with freaking 90,000 wrestling fans in town. Why, why are you going out there? And I, I just haven't gotten around to getting... I don't even know if he's been through here since. He might have been. He's definitely been in for WrestleMania since, but I just... I don't want to throw any more money down on going to WrestleCon because it's like a $50 entrance fee and then then you got to pay for the signature. Like At least when they have the conventions here uh, near me, which is like 30 minutes away, I only pay a $20 entrance fee plus the signature, so that's not too bad. But um, yeah, just that's, uh, that's my elusive signature on, on my belt, man. Honky Tonk, man. You know, one belt I always like the design of, and I've mentioned it before, I like the design of WCW's United States Championship belt, especially like between 92 and like 96, mm-hmm. 97. I love that design, you know, the one that Austin wore, the one that Vader wore mm-hmm. for that short time, the one that uh, Steamboat, all those guys, yeah. That yeah. design is probably the best variation of what the United States belt should look like. Absolutely. I was really hoping, you know, especially since we had a variation of the big goal. Now, granted, it is not the exact design of what Ric Flair and, and all those guys wore in the WWE era. I mean, it's, I think the, the goal is either, the, the gold on the belt is either lighter or darker than the old WCW belt or the NWA belt. I can't remember. But one of the things I wanted was for them, when they brought back the U.S. belt to WWE, was to bring the old belt. Just bring the old belt back. And But no, they had to create it. And I don't like the design of the new belt that they've had around since 2004, whenever it was. Um, I like the old one, like you said, that was from like 92 to, to um, you know, to like 90, 96, I think, when, you know, Eddie Guerrero had it and I think DDP had it. So, um, yeah, I haven't gotten too much into collecting belts. That's the only belt I have, that IC title. They just cost too damn much. The one belt I do want, though, and it's on WWE shop right now, it's the Ric Flair belt. It's like $400. <laughs> But it has a Ric Flair nameplate on it, and if I'm, he, I haven't met him yet, so he's kind of he would be my elusive signature. Not because you did ask that. That's my that's my elusive signature or meet, period for wrestlers. Um, you know, because I mean I got Sting off the list. I mean I pretty much I'm gonna get Triple H off the list here next week. Um, so Ric Flair is really my only um, really really get. Oh, Taker, how could I forget? Taker and Rick. Yeah, Taker's mine. He's, he's eluding me. So Taker and Rick are my two guys that I'm really, at this point, willing to pay out a bunch of money to meet. Because they're the only guys that really, Taker really does signings unless they're like close to Texas, all the Comic-Cons in Texas, and he'll go to Florida because it's a short plane ride or Nashville or something like that. Um, but he's never been to Philly. Um, I know he came up to, he did come up to New York, though, and I, I couldn't get up there for that, which pissed me off. But um yeah, so, I mean, the only other belt I can see myself getting is that Ric Flair belt that WWE um, released like, a couple weeks ago. I know I'm a cheap person, and I won't spend money unless it's something I like or it's food, but everything I saw, that, I mean, I'm looking up a couple websites now. There's ringside collectibles that have their uh, yep. that have their yep. authentic belts and things like that, and I'm thinking, man, it's, you know, it would be nice to have one thing just now where I'm at. I don't have any space. I, I have a friend who collected a lot of sports jerseys. He's given up a lot of his stuff, autograph stuff that he just doesn't have any room for, and he and he's trying to downsize. So that's what happens when you get married, man. Luckily, I have a room to myself um, <laughs> that that I got called the man cave. That I have a lot of my um, my memorabilia in. That I have, um, you know, like I said, my belt and my Undertaker plaque. The Kofi plaque will go on the wall. Here soon, my Eli Manning sign plaque. Um, 
Now I keep my DVDs in here. So, I mean, I've been trying to become a plaque guy. I, got, I still have a lot of space on the wall for more plaques. It just can't be that big. You've been able to go to a lot of events and things like that. Uh, one of the things we talked about is I know that I asked about, yes, the, due to proximity, if you checked out a lot of the CZW shows, I, I didn't know because some people like death matches, some people don't. And I know everybody has a, you know, a particular taste for it. If they, if they like it, if they don't, you know, they don't go to it. Yeah. So they run, they still running for He's just like 20 minutes away. Well, I know they were down in Sewell for a little bit too, which is a much further hike. I wasn't going way down there for that, but in like 2012, um, about eight months, I was on a CZW kick. I would go monthly every month to the shows, and they were good. They're not, it's not just deathmatch. They got a lot of good wrestlers. Um, a lot of guys that are, you know, are in TNA and WWE have come through there. Shoot, Adam Cole did time in CZW. Moxley did time in CZW. I mean, I didn't. I saw Adam Cole when he was in CZW, but um, I didn't see Moxley. That was before my time. I was still at the paper. Um, so I couldn't get to shows on Saturdays when he was wrestling for CZW. But, um, yeah, I mean, they've, you know, not just Jeff Nash guys, they've cultivated a lot of talent um, in that promotion and uh, got a lot of respect for what they do. Um, so <laughs> this is why I stopped going. So WrestleMania 29 weekend in at WrestleCon, I met Nigel McGinnis, who, as you probably know, he's a former wrestler for Ring of Honor, former ROH world champion. Always career champion, one of the uh, one of the most underrated but best technical wrestlers um, of the last like twenty years. Um, great, great performer. Um, he around that time put out a documentary called "The Last of McGinnis," which chronicled his journey, you know, as a his retirement tour. Um, as he was looking to get out of wrestling full time, he he had to be forced to retire because of a um, God was it hepatitis? One of the hepatitises. Um, but he got that treated and got cleared. But even after he got cleared, he kind of came to the realization that, man, WWE's not going to pick me up. He had gotten, he had actually been on TNA back in 2009 and had a great feud with Kurt Angle under the name Desmond Wolf. They had a great feud. I think it was like 2009. Um, and, um, and at one point, the next year, him and Daniel Bryan were actually signed going to be signed to WWE at the same time, but when he went for his physical, they asked, you, they asked him if he had any you know, pre-existing injuries, and he told them yes. He had a shoulder problem, I believe. So they said, well, go get your shoulder worked on. We can't sign you, blah, blah, blah. And he couldn't afford it, so he went to TNA and continued to wrestle. So a few years later, he got a staph infection, or not a staph infection, but the hepatitis or whatever. And even though he healed, he said, you know what, man? I'm never getting to WWE as a wrestler. They don't want me. I'm already 30. I guess at the time he was like 37 or whatever it was, 35, whatever. He's like, I'm just going to retire. So the documentary was based around his retirement tour. And it was very raw and emotional. And it was one part he broke down because he felt he was a failure because he wasn't going to realize his dream as wrestling at WrestleMania. And he saw his friends like Cesaro because all those guys came through together. Like I remember going to an ROH show back in 2009 and seeing – Nigel, Daniel Bryan, and Cesaro on the same show. So all those guys were getting like looked at and either signed around the same time. So it was very depressing for him to see those guys get signed and him not signed. And he, he said in the movie, his quote was in the movie, in the documentary, because he said Daniel Bryan did. Daniel Bryan lied, you know, when they asked him about his concussion history, when they asked him about, you know, his, his injury history. He said, what if I would have lied had I been what I've gotten signed and had a better life? because of that. 
And the thing that stuck with me was his hepatitis in the blood. And that was a lot of the documentaries. He was trying to spread awareness regarding the hepatitis. And I got the documentary in April of 2013. I did not watch it until like June. But a couple of weeks before I watched it, I went to the Tournament of Death, which CZW holds every year, down in, I think it's Towson, Delaware. Because um, uh, DJ Hyde, he has a parent, his parents have a farm down there. So they hold it on the farm. It's outdoors. It was crazy. And it's a slice and dice. Every match is, you know, broken glass and razor blades and just all this nonsense. I was like, okay, this is cool, whatever. Then I came home and I watched the documentary. And I was like, you know what? Uh, I don't really want to see people, uh, you know, slice and dice and, uh, and do this stuff anymore. So I kind of stopped. And I think the last CZW show I went to was, and the only reason why I went is because I had some friends I met online and through WrestleMania, going to WrestleMania every year, they came to town. They wanted to see CZW um, because they were in town for um, something. I forget what it was, but they wanted to see CZW. So I took them down there. We saw that show. That was in um, like March of 2016, and that was the last show I went to. But it was because of Nigel's documentary that I uh, kind of had a – had to take a step back and have a different outlook on, you know, blood and wrestling. Like, you know, yes, it's still cool in regards to telling a story, like if it's by the hard way, but I don't want to see guys like just going out there and slicing and dicing like, you know, Ric Flair did in the 80s, like just how Cody did. Um, you know, Cody bladed at, at, um, at Double or Nothing against Dustin. I'm like, this is too much. Or Dustin bladed or, yeah, Dustin bladed. And, I'm like, this is this blood was everywhere. And I'm like, I'm not trying to see all this. It was too much. And that match was great. And the blood did add to the match, but it was just too damn much. And my new outlook was because of Nigel's documentary. And I recommend it any wrestling fan that wants to see. It's one of the most underrated documentaries of all time. He uh, independently shot, or not shot, but independently produced it. So it's all his own work. And it's good stuff. I'm trying to find it on my shelf. But it's called The Last of Again. It's good stuff. One of the things I wanted to ask you as well, especially you mentioned being a journalist, how long did you get into journalism? And really, what was the breaking point where you said, enough, I'm done with it? So what happened with me, so, you know, I, I graduated from UMES in uh, December 2004. After that, I went down to Florida um, for the winter to do an internship as a news writer. And I did some sports like on the side once a week. Um, but I wanted to get, I wanted to broaden my journalism capability or whatever. And then after that, came home back to Maryland, didn't want to go anywhere, but ended up getting a job in South Jersey at the paper. So I started there in October of 20, 2005. So around 2007, that summer, like stuff started to get real bad with Gannett. Like, I don't know if you ever, you worked for a Gannett paper, so I'm sure you heard of Poopgate. Um, I can't say that, I heard about Poopgate. You never heard about Poopgate? I well, don't think do, I don't think I did. Well, during your downtime, I don't want to get into it on the podcast, but during your downtime, go and Google the Gannett blog and then look through his posts and you'll see something about Poopgate. And that happened at my paper that I was working at. But anyway, so they started doing buyouts around 2007 because, you know, print journalism, it started to take hold that the internet was the wave of the future and you know, print journalism, newspapers was becoming less and less viable. So they started doing buyouts of all the older, the older uh, employees. And I was like, man, I don't want, man, I don't want to be this person 
like in 20 years that, you know, all I've done for 30 years work and, and I get laid off, I still can't retire, but this is all I've ever done. Who's going to hire me? And I saw a lot of people with a lot of worry in their eyes and a lot of questions because they were in that position. Um, and also last summer I actually had an interview with the Baltimore Sun for a high school sports writer job with um, Ron Fritz, um, who had interned for back in 2004 at the News Journal. He had become the sports editor down in, in Baltimore, the Baltimore Sun. So my whole goal in journalism was, and moving up to South Jersey was, you know, I'm, I'm going to come up here, do a couple years, and hopefully get noticed by either the Baltimore Sun or Washington Post and go back down there and cover high schools. So come 2007, in the summertime, there's an opening for the for high school sports reporter um, at the Baltimore Sun. So I apply. Um, I knew Ron, again, from, like I said, from my time interning. He had followed my work because he actually is the one that got me my job because um, the Courier Post was a Gannett paper, too. So he knew the sports editor, uh, Phil Anastasia, at the Courier Post, and they helped each other out. You know, the papers are only, like, about, you know, half hour, 40 minutes from each other, so very close. And, you know, they share content all the time, being at the Gannett papers. So... Uh, invited me down for an interview. I had an interview with them, um, but I did not get the job. It went to another person who had actually, ironically, done a. I was in in college. I was in a a program called the Sports Journalism Institute, which was a a program for minority sports writers or, or for people who were college kids, minorities trying to find minority women trying to find a foothold in the sports journalism industry, and they actually hired someone who did that program. I want to say he did it the year after me. I think he went to Maryland. Um, was it D-Light? Was it Daniel Light? I don't know if it was Daniel Light or not. It might have been. I don't remember. But And they hired him. He got the job, and they let him go nine months later because by then the economy started to go down. So they let him go. He was there for nine months, and I think after that he went to go – uh, I still I think he works in marketing. I still think to this day he works in marketing or something like that uh, for a company in uh, in Maryland. And it wasn't it wasn't Daniel Light. It was um, it was a kid from uh, Central PA. Um, God, and I forget his name. Stephen Lovelace. That's what was, that was his name. And uh, and he he went to Penn State. Um, and I, I think he's still in Maryland. But uh, they they hired Stephen and let him go in like nine months. And I was like, man. So during this time. At the Courier, the uh, you know we're seeing the economy start to show signs of weakness. Stuff is starting to go down, and I'm like, well, I didn't get the job at the um, at the uh, at the news uh, at the uh, at the Sun. I don't want to be in journalism again. You know, when you when you when you look at again the the uh, the buyouts they were doing earlier that year, coupled with the fact that I didn't get the job at the Sun. Couple with now they're 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 talking about cutting the news hole. They're shrinking staff. I mean they hadn't done any layoffs at that point, but they had started um, talking about you know furloughs and, and things of that nature and and all of that. Maybe furloughs were after. Um, they were they were just all types of talk about how to how to save money. Um, so I was like, man, I need to get out of here. So I just started looking. And my goal at first was I didn't want to be in Jersey anymore. My grand plan of Going back to, to Maryland or the D.C. area and, not, and work for the Sun or Post wasn't going to come to fruition. I'm just going to go home and, and do something else. So I started looking for communications jobs anywhere I could apply to in Maryland. 
got like one or two bites, um, but wasn't getting anything, and I was like, I got to get out of here. So I uh, started applying for stuff up here, and um, it was late August of uh, 2008. I got a, a call for a proposal writer slash marketing job out in uh, the Philly suburbs, and I went out there and didn't think I would get hired because you know I didn't had no idea what you know what marketing was. They were looking for all these like Microsoft Word skills that I really didn't have because um, I don't know what you used at the News Journal or at the, at the at the Daily Times when you wrote your stories, but they used this weird archaic program at the uh, Courier Post that was not Microsoft Word that we typed our stories in. Um, I forgot what it was called, but it wasn't Word. It was all this, this coded system. So I didn't know any of these things. I didn't have any skills. I mean, I had the skill set of being, you know, excellent time management skill, relationship building, um, deadline driven, and, and, and able to handle deadline pressure. I had those skills, but like the, the software skills as far as Word and I think they were talking about PowerPoint and all this, I didn't have that. So I didn't take the job seriously and had an interview. I thought it went well. So I have to go to work that day. I think this is on a Thursday or a Friday. I don't know, but I have to go to work that day. Leave the interview, drive home, or drive to work um, from the interview. Or maybe I stop home first, but then drive to work. Go into the office, and Gannett's like, or oh, they have a meeting. They're like, yeah, we're about to lay off a thousand people. Um, before that, I should back up. When I got to the office, the job called me and wanted to offer me the job, and I was kind of taken aback. I was like, what? I just went in there and bullshitted through this interview. Like, what? No, you don't. So I was like, I was just taking it back. So I was like, can I call you back? It was either tomorrow. I don't remember if it was a Thursday or a Friday. I either said, can I call you back tomorrow or can I call you back on Monday? I'm heading into work. They said, fine. I go into work and there's a meeting. They say, Gannett's going to lay off a thousand people. You know, you'll find out next week if you're affected or not. But it's company wide. Um, we don't know if it's going to hit the newsroom. Um, it's going to hit, you know, advertising. It's going to hit wherever. Or it might not. I, I don't remember if they. They might not have specified if it's going to hit the newsroom. All I, all I remember is them saying they were laying off a thousand people company wide, and you will find out, you know, next week or something whether you were affected. So I went home and said I'm going to take that job. And I either called her back if it was a Thursday. I called her back on Friday. If it was a Friday, I called her back on Monday and said I accept. So I accepted and, um, you know, started writing proposals, um, which is what I do now. I've been doing for uh, going on, what is this, 11 years. And uh, I use a lot of those skills that I, that I learned and, and crafted in journalism in my, my job every day. You know, it's deadline driven. Got to be able to handle that deadline pressure, building relationships. I build relationships with uh Partners I work with at my uh, at the accounting firm I work with, just like I built relationships with my sources and my coaches, the coaches and the, the student athletes I covered when I was a, um, you know, I was a reporter in South Jersey. So I was able to transfer a lot of those skills. I didn't know a damn thing about accounting, or I didn't even get into accounting at first, but I, I got into a it was a collection agency is where I went uh, originally, and I stayed there for four years before I started my current job. Um, but I didn't know anything about collections, knew, didn't know anything about marketing and proposal writing, but thankfully I had these core skills that I got from journalism that have been able to translate and allow me to succeed uh, in the field I am now. But yeah, man, long story short, it was just getting bad at the career. 
the poop gate thing, the layoffs, or the I mean the buyouts, and then they were doing the layoffs. I was just I guess I just had an offer at the right time, and I had to jump on it. And you know, people asking like, "What are you doing?" I remember Celeste Whitaker, who's still there. I'm surprised. Um, she's done everything at the Courier. She was the only other black reporter at the Courier. She does. Um, she did the Sixers for a long time. She's done high schools. She's done everything there. She's like, man, are you sure about this? What are you doing? We need more people like you in the industry. She was trying to talk me to, to rethink it. And I'm like, I got to go, man. I just can't, you know, I, I can't do it. I don't really see any long-term future in this. Yeah, I could try to go the online route because that's what everybody was trying to do, right? They were trying to jump off the ship and go online. But even that dried up with the economy, as we saw. I mean, I saw people get laid off, get another job, move, go to another paper, get laid off again. I'm like 2009 or 10. Um, so just because of the shrinking news holes. So, and I didn't want to move again, period. Like unless I was moving back to Maryland, I did not want to move again. So I wasn't going to leave and, and move for, to another job in newspapers, you know, not knowing, you know, the health of the industry. And by that point I wasn't engaged, but I had met my wife at the time. So I kind of wanted to stick around for her as well. So that's just my story, man. I just got lucky that I was in the right place at the right time, and I was able to get a job and not get laid off like you know, a lot of other people that I do know that um, they've gone on to rebound. But, you know, it's not it's never nice, you know, never a good feeling to get laid off. And it's interestingly enough, the, the job I work at right now, there's a lot of people who worked at Gannett who work there now. And a lot of people, uh, one coworker, she made a point to saying that basically if you figure it and you look at it, you worked in a toxic environment for a long time if you worked at a newspaper because just the ridiculous hours, the ridiculous demands, mm -hmm. the things like that, the meager pay, sometimes dealing with the just negative toxic stuff. And sometimes you feel like you have to thrive off the misery of others, which I mean, it happens. Like I said, nobody cares unless bad stuff happens that, Hey, then we actually have something we're doing. Yeah, exactly. So like, you know, I enjoyed my coworkers there for the most part. Um, I did not get along with one of the sports editors. Uh, he was one of the assistant sports editors. Um, didn't get, really get along with him. But um, the guy that Phil Anastasia, who still works, he left in like 2007 to go to the Enquirer. He's still there. Good guy. Good dude. Haven't spoke to him in years just because, I mean, not in the industry, but I mean, good dude. Owe him a lot. I mean, I would not be where I am now would it not be for being at the Courier Post, you know, being before that at the Daily Times, doing internship and all that other stuff. But, um, yeah, the toxic environment, I mean, the crapping on the floor. Like I said, when you find poop gate, it's a funny story, you know. So hours, I kind of knew that going in because, I mean, sports takes place at night. So, like, that's when they have to work. It just sucked because I missed a whole lot of family gatherings during that time. I remember, like, my dad, like, we're having a cookout today. You want to come down? Nah, man, I got to work. Damn, you got to work on a Saturday? Yeah, you got to get your paper on Sunday, don't you? <laughs> so, in holidays, I remember working, like, um, I had to work every Thanksgiving because that was football. You know, it's big in South Jersey. I don't know if you know, I don't know if they do it in Delaware, but Thanksgiving mornings or 1 o'clock, they play football high school here. So, I would have to cover and work on Thanksgiving. Um, so, yeah, just stuff like that. I worked the first Christmas. They put me on the desk, which was a disaster. But I, mean, I had Christmas off, but I had to work, um, you know, I had to work on Thanksgiving every single year. So there were a couple years, what, three years that I didn't eat Thanksgiving with my family because I was working in the newspapers. So, you know, you know sacrifices you have to make, which suck. But, um, yeah, I mean, I don't look back at my time with, you know, any ill feelings 
I look at it as like a stepping stone. I was allowed to, like I said, get a skill set that has allowed me to thrive in my in my job. And I will say this, and I will say this probably to the day I die. Two things about the newspaper industry: covering South Jersey wrestling for a, a school year when I did it in 2006 is the toughest thing I've ever had to do in my professional career. Period. There's been nothing to come close to that. Um, these people here are crazy. They are passionate, but they are crazy. I respect them for their craziness, but they just, they threw me through the ringer. Um, that season I covered it, they knew I didn't really know the product as far as like, you know, being this huge amateur wrestling fan. They, you know, they thought I had a bias between, um, you're down there. Paulsboro has great, great, great wrestling. They have a rich history. I think Paul Marine is still there. He's won like a thousand state titles. And they had a rivalry with Camden Catholic up here. And those were my number two, one and two teams throughout the year. And I kept getting all this pushback from the Paulsboro people. You need to rank Paulsboro ahead of Camden Catholic because they're the better team. Well, have they wrestled? No, but you need to rank them because they're the much better team. Did they wrestle? No, they didn't. Why didn't they wrestle? Well, it's not the kids' fault. I know it's not. The parents, not the parents, but the coaches and the administrators couldn't get together to get these schools to wrestle. So they wanted me to unseat Camden Catholic, who started my season as number one, went undefeated throughout South Jersey, won a state title at their level, to unseat them as number one team in South Jersey because they had one common opponent who they both beat, but Paulsboro beat the school by... I think a, a wider margin, not by much, but it was a wider margin. And you got you got to do the matchups. You got to do the hypothetical. I can't do hypotheticals. They need to wrestle. They never wrestled because they couldn't agree on agree on a neutral site or whether it should be a Camden Catholic or Paulsboro. They just couldn't agree for whatever reason. So I stuck with Camden Catholic, and I got a lot of a lot of nasty uh uh not messages. Nobody emailed me. That was the thing. I'm like, you guys. They would go on the, new, the, the, the NJ.com forum and just bury me to shreds. Mm-hmm. But nobody ever emailed me. Nobody ever came up to me during while I was out of the meet and said anything to my face. So um, I just found that humorous. But these people are passionate. They love their wrestling. That was the hardest thing I ever had to do. And also, there's nothing like it. You know this covering sports, man. Even in the deadlines I'm in now, there's nothing like covering a game or no pressure like covering a game it's running late, and this is before like I had a laptop. You know, we didn't get laptops till like 2008, right before I left. <laughs> we got, we finally got laptops. So there were, you know, my first two and a half years there, I had to file my stories in their office. So there's no pressure like being down like 30 minutes, 40 minutes from the office, covering a state title, title game or match or whatever, and watching the clock because it's running late, and you got to be back up in the newsroom and have your story filed by 1030 mm. and having the speed there are many nights I've sped through South Jersey trying to get back to the newsroom to have 15 minutes of type of story. Um, there is to me, there's no pressure like that, even though, you know, I've, I have times in my job now where I'm run up against the deadline and try to get a proposal out. Um, but there's no, to me, there aren't all these moving parts where there, there were in, in a, and sports reporting because there's no, I got to fight traffic. I got to get in the car. Then I got to type my story and make sure it's filed. It's just, I just got to get this proposal submitted. That's the only thing I got to do. There are these other things. Like, what if I get in an accident? What if, what if I get pulled over? I'm going to miss the deadline. There aren't these other things. What if the power goes out? So, or whatever, in the office. So, 
yeah, uh, those two things are still probably be some of the toughest things I do in my career um, ever. So, but yeah, uh, journalism really uh, prepared me for what I do now. Don't regret it, but had to go, man. Had to go. Yeah, and the one thing, especially once the advent of Twitter came along and social media, man, you obviously don't really think about it, but every tweet you write can actually be part of your story. Just put it there, copy and paste, compile, and that might be the best part of the story. Just plug and chug with the quote here and there. And I I remember just like, for example, if I had a game in Chris Field and there's not enough time to drive back to Salisbury because that's 45 minutes, you would just try to write there, go from the McDonald's, and thankfully gave us laptops at the time. I mean, some people write on their phone. I mean, that's the best thing about Mm -hmm. the notepad. It's like you write on your phone and everything. And there, there is true. Definitely the thrill about, okay, trying to beat deadline. Look what you got, what you got to do this. Plus you got to, and then they started having us do videos and things like that Yeah. and, and all that other stuff. And it's like, man, it is a little bit of a crazy situation, but man, I mean, there was nothing like it. And then all of a sudden I always keep telling people once I got, yeah, nobody can tell me it was a promotion or it's a demotion nonetheless getting sent to the copy desk and doing all this other stuff. It's like, you know, being a beat cop and then getting a, getting a desk job. There's nothing reporting about it. You're, you're basically all this talk about, oh, we want you guys to try to go out there and build your brand and community. What kind of fucking brand do you have me build when I'm sitting at a fucking desk? What good is that? What do I do? You know, then you start feeling like, uh, as I mentioned before, you start feeling like Marshawn Lynch. I'm just here not to get fired. For a a paltry $28,000 salary, it wasn't fucking worth it at the point. Missing my social life, having to deal with all this stuff, not even getting anything. And seeing how they used to treat the sports clerk sometimes, I'm like, the fuck you're going to treat me like this? Because, hey, I I have no problems. Hey, what you know what? There are times that I was probably on the verge of getting fired because I was going to act very harshly, like wanting to stab Joe Carmine with a pair of scissors. But, um, you know, those times tend to, after being removed from the reporter bar, it just wasn't fun. Being in a newspaper was not fun at all. You just shouted out your salary. And what year was that in? Oh, that was, oh, shit, that was 2015. Oh my God! Yeah, See, uh, the man. bump in the news journal was at least I went up to fifty thousand, and then you know. Oh, that's good. Yeah, but that's then I was doing more shit that I was supposed to do, and like I said, if you have a copy desk and you have a person who I'm just gonna start calling out people because at this point, like I said, there, there's some people I just want to call out like, hey, you want all the sports producers really to do a bunch of work for news stuff that we weren't hired to do, yet none of the the news producers learn anything of the sports stuff, thinking we're just gonna do all that shit for you. You know, that was a bullshit. And then there was one guy who was initially a clerk who got promoted to a sports producer. They didn't bump his pay up. So he was still getting paid well low than what he should wow. have been paid. And then, I mean, thankfully he left and got a real job in Boston because he just couldn't deal with all this stuff. And, you know, his girlfriend's up in Boston and all that other stuff. And just the fact that, listen to the audacity of this shit. So he would commute back and forth to see his girlfriend in Boston. He'd take the train back. Sometimes, you know, trains running a little late. We have all this capability to work remotely and he's doing his web producing stuff. So basically, my supervisor at the time, who eventually got laid off, as I told some one of my other friends, my dick gently weeps for because in that case. But so basically, he was he said he could work remotely from the train while doing all the stuff, and she basically said forced him to take a day off, and I had to change my schedule around just because she wouldn't let him work remotely from the fucking train. 
Wow. Yeah. Yet she would yeah, talk man. about, hey, you know, and, and there was one time I'm working down the Salt Bay, I'm hanging at a friend's house. They're like, oh, you got to work from the Daily Times office. You, if you're not going to be in the news journal office, you got to work in Daily Times office. I'm like, what the fuck? You work from home in Dover. How was it this Animal Farm bullshit about, hey, I can work remotely, but nobody else can work remotely? What kind of bullshit is that? Yeah, man. So, like, all your, like, see, like, if you want to go, like, if you get a chance to go read the Annette blog, the Annette blog, I think it finally shut down maybe like two years ago because the guys just like forget it. Um, but it's pretty much like all the stuff you're saying, just like all the complaints, just just everything, how just the morale in the newsroom went, you know, went to hell pretty much from like 07 to like 2013, I think, which is when, when you know, I know, I think, because I, I kept in touch, not, not in touch because I don't keep in touch, I'm terrible at that, but I kind of followed along every time I heard like a, a, another layoff was happening to see who was affected or whatever, and I just kept seeing that the, the morale just kept getting worse and worse and worse and like, you know, I think it's regional here where like people at the Courier it's like a regional desk where they're in tandem with Asbury Park and Wilmington, the News Journal, so I think everybody works together now. It's not all different. Everybody's not all with the same paper or whatever. I mean, they still put out the Courier Post, but like. You could have a story from Martin Frank, like a lot in in the Courier, because they don't have a writer to cover the Sixes anymore with the with the Courier Post because they laid that guy off ten years ago. Yeah, we didn't so, have a, a Sixers writer either. They would just send somebody out every now and then. Martin, they would send Martin out. Oh, every really? Now and then. Yeah, because after a while, it was just because Martin was doing, of course, Phillies, and then he became the Eagles guy. And then they oh, had okay. a sports yeah. and they had a sports reporter doing the Phillies, and then they laid her off. And then yeah. like I said, some of this stuff made no damn sense. And and as much as I tried to be at peace with that place, but when stuff like that flares back up again, it gets me angry. Just like how you know sometimes there would be a point where me and Linwood would talk about you and me as, and while now he's at peace at it, you know he <laughs> the just not, the thought of I'm you not. and me as, you know, I'm and, not. I'm at peace with, you know what, I, I always say this, I made a lot of good friends, I had a lot of in- interesting experiences, I always wonder what if I went to Maryland or if I went to Salisbury, whatever, I wouldn't probably not met the same people, I would have met a variation of the same people because, you know, you know yourself, you know what kind of people you interact with, you'll hang around with the people that you'll be around with. I would not have met exactly the same amount of people, but I would have met people like them. But I always just see like, you yes, I'm at peace, high school, I'm finally at peace with that, um, especially kind of, I always like seeing the whole theory about, you you know, high school reunions always used to joke. You used to go back to see who turned out to be a failure and who turned out to be gay because those are the things that you're like, well, damn, I did not expect that. But um, mm-hmm. time's a great equalizer when it comes to high school. But, you know, you only have something like, eh, as long as the school doesn't shut down because then I'll be pissed I spent all that money paying all the student loans for a school that went defunct. But yeah, that's what I'm concerned about. Like I, like I told you, man, I came out, my debt was nowhere near what these kids are coming out of school with you know so i'm I, i'm i'm thankful in, in that regard that i went to a cheaper school um and i was able to get an education from that standpoint and still get a damn job with a degree that says umes um despite a degree or whatever um but you know my bitterness is just i didn't i did not have a full-fledged college experience which i'll probably never get over that I just I didn't have a full-fledged college experience. It was just like I studied and that's it. And the fact that I rushed through school because I I hated that place so much that I wanted to get out of there, even if it was a semester early, because it was too late. By the time I realized I didn't really like it that much, it was too late to transfer unless I wanted to stay in school for like five years. And I didn't want to do that. Or six years. I didn't want to do any of that. So I just freaking got out. 
Yeah, that's the funny thing. We all, me, you, and Linwood, we all graduated the same day, the same year, four years, and that was it. I mean, I it, it burned me out from wanting to go to grad school, and even then, if you go into journalism, you don't need the, the grad school stuff. I feel like some oh. people tend to do all that other stuff. You don't need it, especially no, in, dude. A, in a field where it isn't, it isn't necessary. It's not going to get you better paid. It's not going to get you a better job. Like I said, maybe if you want to go into teaching something down the road, maybe, but other than that, I don't feel like it, it's necessary. I, I personally don't You're feel correct. like it's necessary. It's just going to put you deeper in debt, especially in a field where you don't get paid well, and then you're just going to be saddled even further in a, in a job that you probably end up hating or you probably get let go from it and eventually, and it, it just wasn't worth it. You're correct. And then that's what I tried to tell my mom at the time. She's a big proponent. So like my, my, my brother just got his master's a couple months ago from Ohio State because he, he lives out in Dayton right now. And he just got his master's. My sisters got their master's. My two sisters have their master's. And she, when you get your master's, I'm not getting anything. I don't need it in the field I'm in. I definitely didn't need it for journalism. I still don't need it now. The only way I would ever, number one, I hate school. Number two, I'm not paying the money. The only way I would ever consider it would be if somebody paid for it. If work's going to pay for it, or if you're going to pay for it, then okay, fine. But I don't need it. I didn't need it, especially didn't need it with journalism. Like you said, unless you want to teach, you don't need it. And let me correct you, sir. I did not graduate in 2005. I graduated in December of 2004. Ah. Again, because I hated UMES. I left early because I hated UMES. I wanted to get the hell out of there because I hated UMES. Yeah. So I graduated a semester early because <laughs> I did not like UMES. And like I said, by the time it got to the point where I was like, man, I just want to get the hell out of here. I did not want to transfer because it was going to add time and money to my college. Yeah. And I didn't want to do that. See, I'll just retcon that you graduate the same time me and Linwood did. <laughs> like... No, 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 man. I, I, I dipped. I dipped. I dipped early. I was like, no, I had enough credits. You know, I took uh, the one year I did um, the year I did an internship with the Daily Times. I got credit for that and took 18 credits on top of that. So they gave me 21 one semester and then another semester. What did I do? I did an internship during the summer, which got me three credits, and then another semester I took another eighteen credits. So those three semesters really caught me up to where I was able to do that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I just you know, I, I couldn't be there anymore. I didn't want I didn't want to be there anymore. So had to go. Yeah, no, I can understand. It's just the environment. While I mean, there's still some good people, and there's good people that we met and and interacted with. I just felt the environment. Like I said, our Saturdays, the day college football should have been going on, it's dead. People you know go dead. home, and there's nothing going yes. on, and it was just a mess. I mean, it's and terrible, man. I I had a friend. Um, so their brothers, one went to Salisbury, who was a year older than us, and the other went to Maryland. My last semester. I literally split my time between going to Salisbury to see one brother or going over to College Park to chill with my other friend who I graduated with, who I'm friends with. So I, all I did was literally either go home or go to Salisbury and stay out there. I didn't stay on campus probably only a handful of uh, weekends my last semester at UMS. I was just tired of it. Just nothing going on, dead, just, just a ghost town, smelling like chicken crap, whatever. Yeah, and that's the Eastern Shore for you. Everything smells like chicken shit most of the time. And the thing is, like, I lived close to home. I didn't even go home. I was just like, okay, I'm here on campus. There's people around to interact with and hang out and, and all of them. And just, you know, you know, sometimes being as close to home, I didn't really need to go anywhere. But, uh, yeah, it, you know, it's 
time i mean like i said i can say this that's where i fell in love with getting into radio i would have never done it without it i just sort of stumbled into journalism to be honest but you know which is weird i mean i i don't even know if they have a school newspaper or newsletter or anything like that that i mean like i said i know burkle does hers but i don't really know what it's it's yeah i mean if it wasn't for Miss Burkle, man, like I, I wouldn't have done any of this stuff. Like she's the one who hooked me up with, what was it Greg Bassett of the Daily Times who gave me that internship. That led to uh, me coming back the next semester to work, which led to me getting accepted to SJI, which led to me interning at the <laughs> the uh, the News Journal, which led to me getting hired by the Courier Post, which led to me being where I am today. So yeah, so I mean, in that sense. Miss Burkle <laughs> was, I have, you know, a lot of thanks and love for Miss Burkle. Um, she was really, for me, the only the only good thing about UMS, like you said, besides the friends that we met. Other than that, uh, I, I haven't been back in, uh, you know, I've been back in going on 15 years. I don't plan on going back for anything. Honestly, I always sort of thought about giving in, maybe going to a homecoming thing, but I'm like, I don't know. I'm not a pain just going down to Princess Anne. But like I said, I think Reddish helped me get one of my first jobs in radio, uh, actually two jobs in radio, and then Burkle helping me get the connection with Bassett that gave me the freelance and that got me in working at Daily Times. I mean, there's, and like I said, it still goes back to the friends. And I remember I was, like I said, I was tight with Dr. Thomas, who, you know, at the time was the interim president. He was our coach of the academic team. I mean, Mm. honestly, it still made me glad that there was actually something I could be a part of, especially, you know, especially sometimes where it seems like knowledge and I won't say intelligence because it's more of a thing of retaining knowledge that knowledge tends to be at least frowned upon sometimes in, in some institutions, even among black folk. Let's be honest, because some black folk don't like it if you know too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. You're right. I mean, like I said, I, I'm not going back. I mean, whatever. <laughs> and homecoming for what? For to watch a basketball game? No. Like, if they ever got a football team, I would highly consider going back. And I actually did. The only time I ever, 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 ever considered going back there was probably ten years ago. I was still in journalism, and I reached out to Burkle. I was like. Actually, I was getting out. <laughs> I was in the process of getting out, and I reached out to Burke. I was like, look, you want me to come? Would you mind if I come talk to you one of your classes to kind of speak this 100 truth about, you know, the field they're trying to get into? And she was like, sure, you know, I would love it. And then it just never worked out. Um, and then I, I might have reached out to her again with the same thing to kind of show that there was a path outside of journalism, but I just can't bring myself to go down there can do it <laughs> yeah i can understand it just and even in like being from do shore, I don't even, even being from the eastern yeah. shore I'm like eh, if i can go and one of my buddies from high school is like he he texted me literally the other day what is there to do in salisbury i'm like dude i have not been down there in 14 years. i don't know what's down there anymore no idea no idea what's down there anymore like i can picture royal farms and that's about it like I, I haven't been on 13 in years. I don't know. I don't know anything. So there, just, isn't, I mean, there isn't anything to do in Salisbury. There still hasn't. Even somebody, as a person who grew up there, there's, there's not much to do in Salisbury. Uh, that's why I sort of scoff and laugh when they say, oh, Salisbury designated one of the places to best raise your kids. The fuck? There's nothing to do there. All they can do is be <laughs> bored and probably smoke meth. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know, man. I just, just the, the, the times I did go to Salisbury for parties, in college, I just I got a lot of bitterness 
that, you know, the white kids that went to Salisbury, whatever, the kids that went to Salisbury, you know, they got treated a lot differently than we did down in Princess Anne because mm-hmm. cops wasn't trying to shut down their parties and they were allowed to have a real college experience and whatever. And the guy that, like I said, the friend I talked about earlier, you know, he, he loved it. He loved his four years at Salisbury. Like he went to community college first and then transferred to Salisbury and spent four years. He loved it. Loved it. Didn't want to graduate, but he knew it was time to go. Yeah, my cousin, he went to Salisbury for four years. He loved it there. He was felt like, you know, it, it was the right place for him. I don't know if he went to UMES, if he would have enjoyed it. It's everybody's different preference. I, I just always just say, because my, my niece, she's going to Bowie now. I'm like, you know, taking the black college experience. Do it while you can, especially Bowie seems to be a step up better than uh, than UMES. And, you know, let's be honest, yeah. folks, UMES grads. Hey, things may have changed, but hey, I'm an old man and, and, and stuff that that's cool now probably isn't my cup of tea, but you know, everything's changed and everything's different, but enjoy your college years. You don't want to sit back regretting and not being happy about it because it's just not going to do you any good because it's, I isn't bad enough in life. I already got enough things I regret and pissed off about, especially this previous job, but I just can't let you be one of them anymore. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't really, the only time I really... It really bothers me. I'll even bring it up. Is I got a coworker that went to Syracuse, and he's he loves him from Syracuse, but he's he's from Philly, born and raised in Philly or suburbs or whatever, Sheltonham, whatever. Loves Syracuse. He's they have like a, a alumni network around here that he is a part of, and he goes to to, to the, the meetings and all that. He'll go up to Syracuse once a year to talk to uh, prospective students about this and that in school and all that. And I mean, he's a year older than us, so he's been out of school eh, a little bit longer than me. I guess he would have graduated in uh, spring of 2004, um, but loves it. And I'm like, man, I wish, you know, look at you, always going up to Syracuse. I haven't been back to my school in 14 years. That's 15 years. That's crazy. Yeah, and I've heard some stories where a friend of mine, like I said, he works at College Park, but used to work at UMES. Just seeing how when you have the recruitment there, they're just bad at recruiting for UMES. How are you going to do that when people are interested and you're just going to basically, because of your shitty attitude, just turn them away? Because, hey, or, or just make it overcomplicated to the point where, you know, no, be honest. UMES, it's an experience. It's something that you have to to be there to experience. Something like that. Instead of just, you know, acting like your shit don't stink and then like, oh, yeah, you know, why am I even here? If you're not there to promote your university, then why the fuck are you there? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's UMES for you. UMES going UMES, I guess. I don't know. Just, uh, like I, said, I don't really, the only time I get any bad feelings is somebody's really, like, all, like, overly, like, proud of where they went to school or any of that type of stuff. I'm just like, man, I didn't freaking have the experience I wanted to in college, which forced me to get out early. I mean, it saved me some money, I guess, but, I mean, it didn't, it didn't, you know, I don't know. I just wish I had a more fulfilling college experience. And and the whole grad school thing, so there was a point where I actually considered it only for the reason of, let me go to Maryland for a year just so I can try to get, and that was this whole, I could try to get, what I didn't get at UMES by going to football games and all that. And that wasn't the right approach to take because it's grad school. You can't live like a college student. You got to be freaking going to class and it's much harder. So that wasn't the right tack to take either. So it just really <sighs> ruined the college experience, but whatever. It is what it is. Long time ago. Can't dwell on it, I guess. 
Yeah, it makes it even crazier. I like spent a lot of money just to try to to take. I took a class at Salisbury, and while well, technically I was a student, I when I had tried to transfer a long time ago, they still had my ID and information. So I like have one of those. Everybody's up in the higher numbers. The sevens, mine's like a one. Like yeah, from like nineteen. Yeah, from like when I was trying to get there in two thousand. Yeah, this stuff from ten years ago. I'm like, well, I guess. Hey, that isn't an issue. So I got there. Uh, yeah, it wasn't too bad of experience. The cafeteria was great. Uh, oh my God, I love the cafeteria there at, at 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 SU. I mean, the 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 comments. Yeah, I love the comments. Oh my God, that put you on me as to shame easily. But uh, yeah, it was a fun experience. Even though it was just only there for one semester. I mean, and I'm still I'm taking classes while still working too, and. You know, I feel like it was a good way to help me because I, I was looking at possibly getting into television news, which I never really pulled the trigger on that because I felt like it's such a superficial business and and just, you know, an overweight black guy on TV. Surprise, surprise. They don't have enough of them as it is. But, you know, what, what am I going to do to just sort of set me apart? And I think that's one of my biggest regrets is just never pulling the trigger on trying to be in television news. I probably could have outdone a lot of these people on TV now. Huh. What ever happened to um to the black anchor that used to work for um for WBOC? Jason Newton? I thought he's in Baltimore. Yeah, Jason Newton. Jason Newton is in Baltimore. Okay. Last time I saw he was in Baltimore. He, he might be on channel eleven. Okay. Uh, WBL. <laughs> you know, sometimes you just gotta go. It's a funny thing. A lot of those people who work WBOC ended up jumping pretty quickly to to the Baltimore station, channel 13 WBL and all this other, yeah. other people moved to New York or DC. And it's just crazy. But, but it seems like the opposite has happened with the newspaper. So like, I, I guess Ben still at the daily times and like Debbie's still there too. Debbie got let go. Uh, yeah. Ben's still there. Uh, I'm trying to think who else was there when you were there. Cause basically everybody is gone. Was Walsh. Was Jim Walsh there? Is, is this a right paper? Walsh? No, no, no. Maybe I'm thinking of the courier. I think he works at a courier. Never mind. Yeah. I remember Debbie. I remember Ben. Uh, I remember. Um, no, that's. Phaedrus, uh, the courier. I remember Ben and Debbie. Okay. So, uh, wow. Yeah. Debbie got let go. How long ago was that? Uh, Debbie got let go. Probably, let's see. Oh, probably 2017, maybe, when they were doing more cuts. Okay. Okay. When they cut the one black reporter who was doing all the web stuff and doing all the, the Facebook live videos that they wanted him to do. And, and he was doing that and getting engagement and they just cut him. <laughs> so, uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's like, what the hell? I mean, at this point, yeah, I can always go easily chant newsroom so white, but that's a different story for a different time. But I would just say this. I, I do appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule. I know a lot of stuff's going on to talk about your experiences. And I feel like there's so many other things that I definitely want to have you back on. Talk about, talk about NBA talk no about and all the other stuff. What are ways that people can reach out to you? You can follow my Twitter. It's at real world's champ. Um, I'm on Twitter. Eh, not as much as I used to, but that's pretty much Twitter's my like wrestling, uh, music, sports hub. Um, you know, I used to live tweet like Raw and SmackDown and stuff. Not so much anymore, but I'm on there from time to time. Um, so um, there, and then it's pretty much it. I mean, not on Facebook all that often anymore either. So I mean, you know, social media is like you said, it's it could be the worst. It's the worst thing that ever happened, and it's also the best thing because you know it's it's a good thing that everybody has a voice, but it's also a bad thing that everybody has a voice. So, I try not to be on there too too much. 
Yeah, I feel like now I'm starting to get to a point where, other than like shilling the podcast and blog and you know laughing yeah. at the occasional funny video and recipes, I don't know. It's yeah. just eh. if it's not yeah, part of my even job with Facebook. Anymore. Like I'm not on there. Like I'm not on Facebook dropping knowledge. I'm in there sharing like a funny, uh, a funny wrestling meme or a funny, I don't know, uh, a music video or something like that. Like Facebook is. The only reason I have Facebook, and I honestly did not get Facebook until 2014, if you can believe it. Um, so I've only been on there five years. And the only reason why I got it is was to, to again, I, like I said, I'm a terrible person with, you know, keeping in touch with people. Like, Wood is really, like, the only person from school. And, like, you, like, I mean, because of Facebook. But, like, Wood, outside of, like, Facebook, he's the only person I keep in touch with from UMES. Yeah. Like, I don't talk to anybody else. Um and except for unless I'm friends with them on Facebook. So this allowed me a way to talk to some people on Facebook I hadn't seen in a long time and, you know, see what they're, they're up to. That's really the only reason why I have it. I don't have it for anything else. So it's really just to goof around and see what people are up to. That's it. Yeah, I started getting Facebook tail end of college. I'm like, okay, let's see what this is about. And, you know, it's yeah, just know. like, okay, yeah, it's been Fun. Like I said, you have a couple of Facebook spats on the internet. Other than that, you know, you, you, you laugh at videos. I say these recipes that I keep trying out, like you see on my Instagram, because, man, yeah. I go to town. Yeah, man. My- <laughs> no, 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 no. No, see, that's the thing. I need to know before we go off the air, when can I come through for dinners by Earl? You are not that far. I can get to Newark in, like, 45 minutes. <laughs> I'll tell you, what man. What are we talking about, right man? There's times where we have so much food, especially because it's just us, no kids or anything, and it's basically, man, it's just left ends up turning to leftovers, which is good because, like, I've been making, yeah. especially in these past three months, I've been making food and I've been dropping weight, so I've been mm-hmm. making the same stuff I would make that you see on Facebook and and on Instagram, and I'm still dropping weight, and I'm just like, shoot, I'm just, I try to put this stuff up. I mean, I, I'm not Gordon Ramsay, I'm not any the other people i just like making a recipe trying something new sometimes like like tonight i'll have a new recipe now my phone's working again i will have a recipe (laughs) out that people will see on instagram and facebook and just trying something new and it's just like why the hell not i love making food because hey i'm a a member of the fat kids coalition growing up so that's gonna be one of my things i'm i'm gonna like to eat i'm gonna like going to baseball games i'm gonna like uh, you know other than working on my podcast constantly and you know working and doing radio those are my things that's pretty much it i'm gonna try to see if i can get enough people we can do like a big ass potluck just have everybody bring their best food and let's go and and see how it is and everything because honestly the best way to get together with people is eating because yeah Yeah. food food brings people together like funerals they bring them together all the time at funerals i mean you know you know you, you say all the stuff about the departed let's go to the repast let's eat yep exactly yeah food is like a universal language or whatever so yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing your recipes, Dinners by Earl, Delaware Life. I dig it. I hope you enjoyed both parts of my interview with Andre Watson. As always, if you know someone who might enjoy this episode, please feel free to share. Next time, I sit down with Brian Banks and Mark DeMora as we discuss a different type of competition, sports video games. We'll share our favorite memories of genre games spanning across multiple generations of consoles and much more. You can find a link to this and other episodes on the Sports Refuge website, or you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, Stitcher Radio, and wherever else podcasts are heard. Until next time, 
This is Earl Holland saying thanks for listening and have a good one. You've been listening to the Sports Refuge Podcast. For more information about our show and our guests, go to our website at thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at The Sports Refuge Sports Blog. Thank you for listening.